Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 35th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Amelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is cyber risk management for lawyers. Sharon and I are happy to welcome as our guest, Steve Chabinski, the senior vice president of legal affairs, general counsel, and chief risk officer for the cybersecurity technology firm, CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike offers cyber incident response services, actionable cyber intelligence, and a next-generation continuous monitoring platform that provides immediate threat detection, attribution, and response capabilities. Steve also is an adjunct faculty member of George Washington University and the cyber columnist for Security Magazine. Prior to joining CrowdStrike, Steve had a distinguished 17-year career with the FBI, during which time he was its top cyber lawyer, then the head of its cyber intelligence section, and ultimately deputy assistant director of the FBI's cyber division. Welcome, Steve. Sharon and John, I'm very glad to be with you today. Well, I guess the very first thing we have to ask you, Steve, is why do lawyers need to understand the cyber threat? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of lawyers, I think, have let this go by them, and they're just thinking this is somebody else's problem. But I I think, in answer to your question, it's for two reasons. First, lawyers are actually being targeted by hackers precisely because they are lawyers. That's important for members of the bar to appreciate. We're in possession of some of our clients' most privileged, sensitive communications. We have an obligation to protect that information, right? I mean, in fact, we have ethical obligations to protect the information. All attorneys know you have this duty of confidentiality. But I think what's really less obvious for attorneys is that cybersecurity also extends to our ethical obligations of competence. And I was reading a number of years ago, I think it was all the way back in 2005, that the Arizona State Bar looked at this issue and they told lawyers that you either better become competent in cybersecurity or you need to retain an expert consultant. I I mean, I think a lot of lawyers realize that a chief information security officer isn't allowed to go around giving legal advice, but you've got lawyers who are out there giving cybersecurity advice. (laughs) And, you know, as added pressure to this, we're now seeing clients, the banking finance clients are leading the pack in this regard, that are actually requiring lawyers to demonstrate their information security practices before they'll even retain the firm. So that's the first reason um, for the lawyers themselves. But I think, you know, there's a second reason as well, and it's that lawyers need to understand the cyber threat to better serve our clients. The, our clients are uniformly facing this threat as well, and lawyers are in a really great position to offer valuable counsel to our clients, uh, whether it's in advance of a cyber incident or, unfortunately, if it comes to it, um, after an intrusion. So I, I think those are pretty good reasons why lawyers really need to get on top of this and figure it out. Steve, do you, do you see that if there's a there any difference if you're a corporate counsel versus outside counsel? 
I've actually had the chance of being both um, over the years, and I think there is a difference. I, I found that the best part about being outside counsel is that you typically get the hardest questions thrown at you, and you're relied upon for really deep subject matter expertise. And in the case of cyber, that translates into outside counsel routinely being brought in to discuss very, very complex issues like data security compliance obligations, uh, privacy issues relating to the use of customer data, employee monitoring considerations, um, and then, of course, you've got data breach notification requirements, and, you know, you've got outside counsel doing this internationally where you've got legal conflicts across jurisdictions. So I think outside counsel has a strong, very uh, deep expertise role in this. Now, for corporate counsel, I think in-house lawyers, um, forgetting about cyber for a second, Mm -hmm. are among the most perceptive issue spotters in most companies, right? When you're outside counsel, you're relying on your client to come to you with something. When you're inside, you actually get to prevent things before they become problems, and you get to use your expertise to identify these issues. And so when it comes to cyber, um, what you're seeing is that cybersecurity has the legal issues we just talked about, which in-house counsel um, should become familiar with and, and help to the extent that they don't need to seek outside expertise. But um, the other thing about lawyers is that lawyers just know when they're not hearing a straight answer. And so what ends up happening is that's really important here because corporate counsel are essential not only in ensuring compliance with data security laws, but perhaps equally important, I found that the in-house lawyers are essential for having well-run enterprise risk management programs because most companies aren't fortunate enough to have chief risk officers. And a lot of executives in a company Basically, they have a dog in the fight when it comes to examining cyber risk. You can't really ask the chief information security officer if the million dollars he or she just spent was worth it. So it's basically coming down to the general counsel and the chief financial officer with their staff to ask those hard questions and help set that uh, meaningful risk posture uh, that you're going to end up explaining to the CEO and also to the board and maybe even the shareholders. So, you know, corporate counsel is becoming increasingly important to set risk posture in organizations when it comes to mm. cyber. Yeah, I really like how you like, explain that, and I hope both sides of the house get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the assumption is that the, the employees are actually listening to corporate counsel, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sure hope they are. You know, like I said, you know, we, we've got, you know, the lawyers are routinely, you know, in the best position to offer incredibly perceptive both questions and answers as to so many issues that, you know, I'm hoping that companies are taking proper advantage of, of their in-house counsel resources. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we, like you, Steve, we lecture a lot on this topic of cybersecurity. And when we do, not only do we get lawyers looking at us like deer in the headlights, even though we, we're trying to bring it down to a level that they can understand, but then we get them whining that, oh, gee, this is too technical. We don't really want to get involved with this. Um, so what do you tell them? Why do they, they, they really need to understand the technology of all this? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, on, on, in terms of really understanding the technology, I think the first thing is that uh, most people don't really need to understand the technology to be a very strong value add for cybersecurity. So I, I don't think that lawyers, you know, I mean, obviously some lawyers are going to need to get more in the weeds, but as a general matter, I don't think that lawyers need to be engineers or even geeky for that matter to get a handle on this. And certainly they don't need to be technical to ask the right questions. If you, I mean, when I think about that, a lawyer can ask their client or if, it's, you know, if you're in your own firm and you, you want to ask you know, the managing partner and the firm, 
you know, whether you have a formal information security policy in place, right? I mean, that's a start. You don't have to be technical for that. And, you know, if the answer is no, that's probably a problem. If the answer is yes, <laughs> was it communicated to all employees? If you had to ask, maybe it wasn't. That's not a technical question. You can ask whether there's an incident or data breach policy in place. And you could see if that takes into account all of um, either your firm or your client's statutory obligations, your regulatory requirements, contractual requirements. So I think that that's, you know, not technical at all. You could get a little bit more technical, but when I say a little bit more technical, I mean, asking questions like, is your firm or does your client allow or prevent its employees from using thumb drive? That's not too technical, but it's really an important <laughs> question when it comes to figuring out data leak leakage questions. You know, you, you see that same type of question being asked about whether or not your company would allow your corporate email to be forwarded to a personal email account, right? So if I get something in at my corporate.com address, can I just forward it to my Yahoo or Gmail account? So there are a host of these types of questions that are very penetrating and really help set the posture of security for an organization that, they, that anybody can really understand. You can get a handle, and then it's the answers, right? What are you doing about it? That might get a little bit more technical. But at the level of being you know, an attorney or you know, for, for those people who are listening that might be on um, boards of directors, for example, there are a lot of questions and a lot of answers that you could understand that don't even get near technical. And it's never going to require that you be able to program a computer. <laughs> but if you don't know what a thumb drive is, you're, you're in trouble. <laughs> I, I think that that's right. That's as technical as it's going to get. <laughs> Steve, can you uh, tell us, are there any specific threats that, that companies and firms are, are facing as a result of all these, this cyber activity that's going on? Yeah, I would divide this into really uh, two categories of threat right now. Um, there, there is a third, I'll start with that, um, just because I want to say that we haven't seen much of it yet, but it's always concerning, and that's the terrorist cyber threat. Uh, we do see that terrorists um, speak about cyber. They are specifically most interested in disrupting the financial services and, you know, surge and critical infrastructures like the electric power grid. So they're talking about it, but we really haven't seen that coming out to date. So um, yeah, as a matter of, of practicality, what we are seeing a lot of, I would say, falls into two groups. Organized crime groups that are focused on stealing money, and then intelligence services that are focused on stealing secrets. And the organized crime groups, these guys are sophisticated. They are international. They could have thousands of people working throughout the world. They actually can afford to spend millions of dollars on putting in the right processes in place to get infrastructure and to be able to commit their thefts because they're making tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in return. And what they're looking for when they're breaking into companies, the organized crime groups, they're looking to see first, can you get into the employee database to get personally identifiable information? And they're going to go ahead and they're going to use that for identity theft. And you see all the data breach reporting requirements. You know, the best thing you, you could do there is make sure everything's encrypted, right? So even if someone should get into your system, at least mm -hmm. they can't take advantage of that information. The other thing, similarly, is they're looking for customer records, right? Not just because it has the PII, but then you get the added bonanza of being able to steal credit card information. And then finally, what we saw a lot of was either installing keystroke loggers at law firms or companies um, so that you're actually capturing all the passwords um, or 
it's a similar thing replacing through, a, through um, an intrusion the actual browser that people are using. So whether you're using Netscape or Internet Explorer or Safari, Firefox, whatever it is, if a bad guy could come in and change that browser so it's going to them instead of where you think it is, those are mm-hmm. actually enormous um, uh, vulnerabilities and that we're seeing threat actors exploit. And when they do that, what they tend to look for on the organized crime side are bank accounts, right? This is really, I mean, for, you know, most people don't put a lot of money in their checking account. But if you're a company that's going to have payroll, that's going to do procurement, acquisition, and that you're paying people through your, through your bank account, there are tens of millions, hundreds of million dollars that are, that's being stolen, aggregated, uh, of course, over all of the victims through that method. So that's what the organized crime groups are doing. And we've actually, unfortunately, seen businesses go out of business because they suffered from an intrusion, and then the bad guys managed to get into their bank account through the pet, not because they were able to break into the bank account, but because they were able to get the passwords from the victim and then use them and then drain the account. So that's what you're seeing on the, uh, on, unfortunately, on the organized crime side. On the foreign intelligence side, I look at where we are in this world now, where companies, private citizens, have to defend themselves against foreign nations. Like we're, we're talking, you see the headlines that China is using its military and intelligence services not simply to break into government agencies, right? There's always been that spy on spy, but they're using their military and their government um, intelligence services to break into companies and law firms. The FBI, years ago, while I was at the FBI, we put out a warning that actually warned lawyers that foreign intelligence services were breaking into law firms because, you know, Mm -hmm. that's where there's this vast collection of secrets, of trade secrets and intellectual property and, you know, merger and acquisition strategies so you've got the, this, this um, notion now that the private sector has to defend itself against foreign nation states, and that's proven to be impossible. Yeah, but it's illegal to hack in China, right? So they can't be doing it. Yeah, it's illegal to hack. And November 2009, if memory serves, was that first alert to law firms. Uh, and unfortunately, it fell largely on deaf ears. So, so to spur them along, without becoming too technical, what are the, some of the ways that hackers are breaking into companies and law firms? Yeah, I think the, the most common is going to be through email, right? And, and, and this is a, a dilemma, right? There's, there are a lot of good email monitoring services that are trying to filter out for what we would call um, either spear phishing or just uh, regular emails that are not targeted. Um, and, and for the audience, you know, not everybody has heard this term spear phishing or knows um, what it means. But there are two types of emails that go around the Internet. One is just this general email. It's, com- it's, it's almost like the Nigerian letter scam of, of the old age that's now we're seeing on the Internet with emails, where the bad guy picks a topic that maybe three out of every ten people would want to open. Um, so, you know, you just say your UPS package has arrived, right? Your FedEx tracking number is as follows um, from certain certain bank. And if you don't have a UPS package or FedEx, you realize immediately it's spam. But if you have one of these, you just say, oh, that must be for me. And so people are routinely opening up these emails that are just scattershot, like a shotgun to the entire Internet. And, and you're seeing people open these up. In the old days, it used to be, don't open up you know, an attachment. Well, then the bad guy started using links, so then you can't click on a link either. Um, and then the worst part is it used to be, don't open up. Uh, an email from someone you don't know, well, then the bad guys got smart again. 
they figured out how to, how to spoof the header of the email, meaning who it looks like it's um, coming from. So this is not anything dissimilar from a regular letter you would get in the mail. I could write any name in the upper left-hand corner. At least in the real world, you might know, you know, Aunt Tilly's uh, handwriting, and you could see that it's not hers. <laughs> but here, you know, you don't know Aunt Tilly's font. I mean, it's just coming in through an email. And, and so when the bad guys realize that they could actually make an email appear like it's coming from someone, not only did that help them with this general shotgun approach, but then they started really targeting people. And that's what's called spear phishing, where they figure out who the target is, they do a lot of research about who their target is, and they craft emails that are very specific to that person. So an example would be that, you know, you look on social media sites and you realize that, you know, Jack and Jill were together um, over the past weekend at the beach, and all of a sudden you get an email right, from Jack or Jill that says, oh, here are a couple of really good photos that I took at the beach. And then there's the attachment. It's almost impossible not to want to open up that email. You wouldn't even think twice because how could anybody have sent that? But we have so much information on the internet nowadays about us, and the bad guys are taking advantage of that. And the bad guys that are taking advantage of that fall both in the organized crime group and really in the foreign intelligence service group. When the FBI was warning that lawyers are being targeted, they're getting spear fishes that are highly crafted because there are people in other countries that during their day job, they have your name, your firm's name, and it's their job every day to try to get you to open up an email, and they won't stop. That's actually their job. It's not random. Mm -hmm. So this is very concerning, and people have to recognize that. You have to work with your IT staff to ensure right, that you've got the right controls in place, that you're being prepared in case there is an incident, that you're filtering out these types of email, that you are more cautious on what you open. So I, I think spear phishing really is going to be the number one way. The other way that people are getting into accounts um, in, in a large part is password guessing. And password guessing itself um, has two different aspects to it. One is just the weak password, right, where everyone keeps using password one, two, three. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you think you're clever and you'll do one, two, three password. And, you know, it goes on and on where, you know, what you think is something that's unique is known by everyone. And people should recognize that because how many times have you had to sign up and you have to try to get a username and you put in the username and it says taken. And then you try another username and it's taken and you come up with some crazy name and you're stringing together words and it says taken and you start realizing that the unique way that you thought you thought that you thought you thought <laughs> isn't so unique that there is going to be someone out there who thinks like you. And that's how passwords are being generated, that the bad guys have these databases of passwords where they're stringing together um, different words. And also based on the passwords they've stolen, they put that into the database and then they just push it up against these external facing applications until they could get in. So that's one way. The other way is the password reset mechanism, which tends to end up having questions that are easier to answer than the original password. So all of a sudden, um, a bad guy goes and says that they're you, and they just say, I forgot my password. And then, lo and behold, a series of questions comes up, and the first one says, where were you born? Well, you know, the odds are that there's something in your social network 
that they might be able to figure that out or they could guess it reasonably quickly. And then the next thing they'll say, um, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? And again, you know, they're going to look at your profile. They're going to look at who your social connections are. And you cannot imagine how many accounts have been breached based on the successful, I wouldn't even call it guessing at that point, it's really research, to figure out these shared secrets, if you will, right? You, you, you know something, but you think that, only that, this, that you've shared it only with the uh, website, but it turns out you may have shared it with the whole world. And so we've seen some very famous, that when you see these um, examples where um, celebrities are getting hacked, a lot of those cases involve uh, those password reset guessings. So those are two of, of the really um, most popular ways. And of course, we always have uh, instances where people aren't patching their system and, peop- and you've got some hackers that actually have more skill and are able to break in uh, to computers. And you know, those are just the remote attacks. I haven't even gotten into the insider access and then supply chain issues, right? That you could just buy something off the shelf and it already has a problem. There was a, a case a few years ago where one of these large electronic consumer stores was selling digital picture frames that already had malware on it. So the minute someone took that picture frame and plugged it into their computer, then it spread to the whole computer. So we've got these issues as well with peripheral devices. So my main, my main um, what I would stress as to all of this is when your IT department says, you know, you're not allowed to, you know, put in your own software. You can't install your own software. You can't install your own devices. There's a reason they're saying that. And what's interesting is I've heard a million times where employees have said, you know, this is ridiculous how my company is. I can do more at home on my computer than I can do at work. And, you know, my answer to those people is that's fine because at home you're not responsible for the secrets of thousands of clients and the livelihood of thousands of people and, you know, and their families, right? And so there is a different risk posture of what can be done at work and what could be done at home. And it's important for lawyers in law firms where you've got, you know, or or lawyers that are sole practitioners who are protecting confidences to recognize that that environment that they're in isn't the same as the home environment. They have more to protect, more to lose, and they need to take security more seriously. And that could require a a culture change in how we operate. (laughs) Yeah, actually not doing what they're not supposed to do. Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> well b- before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan, Gallivan, and Amelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room eDiscovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time eDiscovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy eDiscovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. 
Today, we're talking to Steve Chabinski, the Senior Vice President of Legal Affairs, General Counsel, and Chief Risk Officer for the cybersecurity technology firm CrowdStrike about cyber risk management for lawyers. Steve, your company was named by the MIT Technology Review as one of the 50 disruptive companies of 2013 based on its innovative power amongst the likes of Apple, Google, and Facebook, and you were the only security company that was mentioned. What do lawyers need to know about what cybersecurity innovation looks like at your company and at other companies similar to it? You know, it's really interesting what the landscape in the future looks like. And the predominant focus is going to be on threat deterrence and threat attribution. Um, People are really realizing that the vulnerability mitigation efforts only work for so long. You can't just keep patching your system and patching your system. The bad guys always find a way around it. So what we ended up doing at CrowdStrike um, and where I see innovation occurring across the board where we're going to end up heading is how do you detect the bad guys? Instead of trying to constantly detect your vulnerabilities, how do you spend more time quickly detecting the bad guy? We were seeing, um, while I was in the FBI, it would take months, sometimes years, for victims to even know that they had been intruded. So that is uh, going to change. The second thing is that we're looking to have real-time damage assessments, right? What is the bad guy doing when they're in your system? So what we've seen in the past is that once a company figures out that there had been an intrusion, they don't have the available logs, they don't have the ability to know what records were looked at, if anything was changed, if anything was left behind that might alter records in the future. So they were just sitting on this bad situation. And so moving forward, um, what you're seeing in innovation is to make sure that you have instant detection. What's going to be gone is the after-action forensics where you're going to have to bring somebody in after the fact. We're going to be Um, much more responsive in capturing that data so you can see exactly what's happening. And then attribution, trying to determine who's doing it and why are they doing it, which will help you have a credible response. Um, A lot of people always think, well, the best thing to do is you just stop the attack and you try to get the person out. But what we've seen is that doesn't really work all that well for these persistent actors like nation states. They're just going to keep coming at you. So uh, we and others have been developing very sophisticated ways so that the bad guy doesn't know that you're onto them, but you could keep them busy, make sure they are getting data that is of no relevance, and you're able to keep going uh, with your business uh, without, uh, without that risk. And the other area that we are seeing is using big data and cloud platforms so that customers across the world can start communing, communicating information to each other in real time for all of their protection. It's like a neural network, right? Right now, everyone's operating in human speed. We have all these um, information sharing partnerships where you're waiting days for someone to say, look out for this, and then you have to go tell your IT person to install a signature. That doesn't work in the future of cybersecurity. It has to be machine speed, real time. So those are the concepts that um, companies like CrowdStrike are driving towards to have instant detection, instant a review of damages, attribution, and being able to have communities self-heal. And it's very exciting. That's great. But what, what about the reactive side, though? I mean, what, what should a lawyer do after they've learned that they didn't take all the steps that you just talked about and they actually were compromised and they have an intrusion? You know, I think that even if they took all the steps that we're talking about, 
there's going to come that day where they suffer the intrusion. So the number one rule is this is an area that you can prevent maybe 90% of it, and that's a good day, but you have to be prepared to answer your question. When that day comes, what's the position you want to be in? And the first thing is that you have to have identified your resources, right? So you have to have an incident response plan in place, lets people know what they're supposed to do. That could have a communication strategy, for example. You don't want all of the employees in a company going to the media and saying, hey, you know, we, we suffered a breach. You have to get a handle on that. Um, you also don't want to let the bad guys know that you're on to them. Uh, the other thing that we are stressing is the need for a company in advance and the lawyers in the best position to do this, to have contractual arrangements in place in advance with a cybersecurity incident response firm. If you don't have that contractual relationship in advance, what we've seen happen, um, and it's only to the detriment of the client, um, is that it will take days sometimes to get that incident response firm on the ground helping you. And that's just unconscionable. Um, Far better uh, to have an agreement in place, even if it never gets used, but you know who to pick up the phone and then the company can be on the ground within hours to help make sure they can tell you what systems need to be uh, turned off, if any, uh, how to get the bad guys out of the system, how to work most effectively with law enforcement, and make sure that you've minimized damage so that in the event of litigation, you are in the best position possible in advance of the breach, you follow best practices, you minimize any harm um, afterwards. So I, I think that those are the real steps that lawyers should take. Steve, I'm going to wrap us up here by asking you a question and having you answer me in a single word. Over the next five to 10 years, do you see the cybersecurity problem getting better or worse? Worse. <laughs> Why did I know that was going to be your answer? <laughs> what, what a fitting ending. Thank you for a very, very colorful exploration of this subject. I know a lot of people will have learned a lot from it, Steve. So thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.